I'm Andrew Murata, host of the Education Leadership and Beyond podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you are listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, congratulations goes out to Chris Y. Chris won the Tony Box giveaway. Thanks for entering and uh, thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the Tony Box, Chris. The holidays are on their way. And they can be a particularly stressful time of year if you don't have a plan. Well, have I got a solution for you. Join my friend Lynn with ConnectFlow Grow in her launch of Stress Less Holidays. Through this live Zoom webinar, Lynn will teach you how to evaluate your stress and develop a plan to reduce it. This is an abbreviated version of her 21-day Stress Less Challenge to give you the best tools in the shortest time frame. A less stress holiday is priceless. Your investment of $17 per person or $2,500 flat rate per organization is the first step towards taking control of holiday stress. Learn more about stressless holidays and join by going to my website, stephenmiletto.com sponsors. Click on the ConnectFlow Grow logo and the link will take you to where you can find out more information and sign up. Time for you to stress less during the holidays. Hey, do you need help in becoming more effective at teaching virtual classes? Well, NVTA, the National Virtual Teaching Association, has a semester program that is college accredited and designed to help you become more successful as a virtual teacher. A few of the topics that will be focused on are establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources, among others. NVTA is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, and there's so much there to help you be successful in the virtual classroom. Uh, so take a look. Go to my website, stephenmiletto.com slash sponsors, find the NVTA logo, and click on it to take you to their website. Happy learning. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with N.L. Holmes. That's right, she's back. You might remember us talking about her historical fiction, The Empire at Twilight and the Lord Hani Mysteries, on episodes 346 and 385. This is so cool. She has a new Lord Hani mystery book out. It's set in ancient Egypt and is called Lake of Flowers. Awesome story. You're going to love this episode. So much cool stuff to learn. Thanks for listening. And, and, and by the way, before you go, it would be so cool if you would go to my website, stephenmiletto.com slash reviews and left a review for the podcast. Could you do that for me? Thank you so much. Enjoy the show. Boone Titanium Rings found on the web at boonrings.com is an affiliate partner of Teaching Learning Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's got these carved pistons and, and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the Gamer Rings, the Stealth Series, and the Black Zirconium. As a note, they also make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout, use my code. Capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, number 12, and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring, and I know that you will love yours. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators. Helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. N.L. Holmes is a prolific novelist embarking on another significant career phase. Prior to taking up the power of writing and using his pen name, 
She was an accomplished archaeologist and teacher for 25 years. Early in her career, she served as a nun for two decades. In between, she was an artist and an antiques dealer. Yes, she has lived an interesting life, and the sum of her experiences informs and inspires her writings today. Holmes, who earned her doctorate in classical and Near Eastern archaeology studies from Bryn Mawr College, despite an offer to attend Princeton, has excavated in Greece and Israel and taught ancient history and humanities at Stockton University in New Jersey and University of South Florida for many years. She also did archaeological artwork for excavations from Lebanon. With seven published novels, and now eight or nine, we... Actually nine. That's nine awesome. and a half. Sorry, 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 sorry. Now at nine and a half novels, uh, so we're almost uh, at that tenth one. Uh, Holmes is the creator of the Lord Haunting Mysteries. Uh, the inspiration for her Bronze Age novels came with the assignment she gave her to her students one day. Um, here are the only documents we have telling us about royal divorce in Ugarit in the 13th century. How much can we say about what happened? She notes it quickly became apparent that almost anything we might come up with was as much fiction as historiography. She also penned the Empire Twilight series, historical fiction set in the 13th century, CB, during the Hittite Empire. Born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas, she attended the University of Texas in the honors program, but dropped out midway to enter into the antiques business. Two years later, she entered the Discoused Carmelite uh, Convent in Texas. She left the convent 20 years later and returned to school to get her B.A. in classical and Near Eastern archaeology. Holmes resides with her husband, three cats, and a dog. They split their time between Tampa, Florida, and northern France, where she gardens, weaves, and plays the violin. They have an adult son. Today, we are focused on her latest addition to her Lord Haunting Mysteries called The Lake or Lake of Flowers. Um, and Al, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Hi. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, glad to have you back. You know, I read in your bio that you play the violin. How long you played the violin, and what do you pr prefer uh, to play or perform? You got to tell us about that. Well, oh, this is this is yet another casualty of the COVID. I I, I started the violin when I was seven, and then I let it drop, as so many kids do. And about eight years ago, when I was working on the the uh, singer and her song, I had a lot of archaeomusicology books to look through for research, and I realized I did I couldn't understand them. I I didn't know enough musical theory, so I started taking the violin since it's such a nice easy instrument, <laughs> and uh, I played was getting better slowly up until we became sequestered here and we are in a condo and so I can't really play with the neighbors just a wall away and it's uh, I sort of given up for the moment as soon as I get back to France I'm picking it up again but I, I'm I'm fond of Baroque and classical music Baroque music I guess awesome appreciate you telling me that and I can understand that's that's rough if you're uh, sharing walls with people and uh, um, you know you're supposed oh, to yeah <laughs> you're supposed to pick that up at like you know one in the morning and start playing that's what <laughs> No. Well, you know, I, I used to at our old house. I played at 4 a.m. every morning. Nice. Yeah, that, that might not go over well with neighbors. <laughs> because it was an L-shaped house and I could get away from my husband. But that's not a possibility at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. That's awesome. <laughs> the, uh, you know, it's, uh, um, it, it, it's, it's just uh, funny when you think about something like that, that the, just the environment can change whatever it is that you're trying to, trying to do for a little bit. So I wish oh, you luck. Yeah. Getting back to it. Uh, so I, I want to remind everyone that we've talked before in episodes 346 and episodes 385. Um, NL shared about previous books in her Lord Haunting Mystery series and her The Empire Twilight series, which focuses on the Hittites. Could you talk a little bit about what originally inspired you just to start writing? Well, I, I grew up around books. I've always read voraciously. My aunt was the book editor for the local paper. My father had written short stories for Boy's Life and things like that. So, 
it was always out there as as a reasonable possibility. But I got into other fields and did, you know, academic writing and things of that sort. However, as I was teaching ancient history, I had a class called Ancient uh, Near Eastern Empires. And this episode, which you've already mentioned, um, where I gave my students documents and said, now reconstruct this event. It was such an interesting event, and there was just the right amount of, of blank space around the facts we had. I thought, you know, this would make a great novel. So when I retired from teaching, that's what I set to do. Very cool. Very cool. That's, uh, you know, and I can imagine. I mean, it just kind of fit in with what uh, your world is because you um, in and around the historical writings and all that and then realizing, hey, there's some unique characters here. <laughs> we could, I could do something with this. I like that. The uh, yeah, Kind of yeah. like having being able to be creative with the information. Yeah, it's it's a lot more fun than straight historiography. <laughs> you, know, you want to make it as authentic as you can, but on the other hand, uh, the characters, the personalities are fictional, and a lot of the sort of small details or the more the personal Hani's um, personal. Uh, arc they're all fictitious although they're set in you know an accurate historical setting gotcha yes the uh, and just one of the things i want to um make sure that i, I get us to talk about is something you've commented about is that the lord honey mysteries take place during the reign of ancient egyptian pharaoh okay Akhenaten? <laughs> Akhenaten. Akhenaten. Yeah. Akhenaten. ah there we go yes this there you go. Uh, so is, this is really one of those fascinating periods, for sure. That, and that's what I ask you. you. You made a comment that it was, you know, it was quite unusual and challenged the norms of the day. Could you share a little bit about this time and what you mean by it challenged the norms? Well, uh, Egypt was, of course, a, a polytheist society in which there were many gods, and the the temples and their priesthoods were enormously powerful, especially that of Amun Ra, the main god. And uh, these these uh, estates and the tens of thousands of people they employed were real engines of the economy. And um, Akhenaten threw that all over in a, in a matter of relatively few years and replaced them all with this uh, one, well, started with a few gods and got fewer and fewer until there was one god, um, probably his own father. And he was the only priest. And it was, so it, it really changed all that socioeconomic structure that surrounded temple culture. But in many other ways, too, he was revolutionary. He overthrew the canons of art, which were millennia old, and substituted something different and I'm sure very shocking to his contemporaries. And he even changed the idea of writing from some of the formal sort of uh, very formal writing that was different from the way the language was spoken to making it more informal, more like the spoken language. And and so all of these things would have been a real shakeup for people who had known essentially the same culture for thousands of years. That I can imagine. I can, and I actually, I'm kind of surprised that he survived, <laughs> personally survived. Um, it seems like somebody at some point might've said, you know, know. take him out. <laughs> kind of interesting there. Maybe they did, but they weren't the right person. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> That's funny. Um, that makes me want to ask this. Could you talk a little bit about how we know what we know about this era? I mean, it, it seems like we're getting to know more and more about that, that time frame and that, that era. What, how, how do we know what we know? Well, it's only even been 
known to have existed for a little over a hundred years. I mean, it was in the latter part of the 19th century. And the reason for that is that uh, Akhenaten was completely excised from the history of Egypt by his successors. You know, it was as if he and this whole movement had never existed and the city was razed to the ground. And, you know, it was it was as if he had never existed. It was only archaeology that brought it back to us and uh, the discovery of his capital, his new capital, which is uh, today's Amarna, yesterday's Akhenaten. And what we know mostly about the diplomacy or the, the uh, foreign relations of this period were thanks to a series of, of diplomatic correspondences that were preserved uh, by burning. They were tablets that were preserved in the capital, which we call the Amarna letters, which were uh, correspondences with vassal states and fellow great kings, um, things, communications from diplomats and things like that. And that's where we discover Lord Hani, in fact. That's very cool. That's, uh, and it's just amazing how that survived. I mean, was it, you know, like, um, yeah. in vessels or something? I mean, was it in something that kind of helped protect it? You... Well, they were not uh, written on papyrus as, as pure Egyptian stuff would be. They were sent from the north, the Near East, and so they were on clay tablets. And when there was apparently a fire that burned the tablets, baked them, and so when things fell down on top of them, they, they were preserved in one state or another. That's awesome. That's, you know, just by accident of uh, nature or whatever, or the times just uh, managed yeah. to, to be able to survive. That's especially since he was erased from their regular records. That's uh, that's just fascinating. Sense. Well, yes, I wish we'd find another batch. Of <laughs> <laughs> that's very cool. It's uh, I think those, those are the aspects of history that are so fascinating is that when just something happens that where you're able to just uncover or know more that, uh, and when you put yeah. it in perspective, the, the amount of years that have gone through, you know, to survive that long is just amazing. True. And, and we're continuing to build on the, the partial knowledge that we've gained of the, by the 21st century, all sorts of little artifacts and things have been found that shed light on, uh, the length of a reign or, you know, who held what office or who was the son of who. And it's by tiny little increments that our knowledge is growing. So, it, But it still is growing. So Egypt is a, a red-hot area for archaeological and historiographical knowledge. That's awesome. Yeah, and i got to ask this because we're, I'm getting ready, to, we're getting ready to get into your uh, newest book. And, uh, and one of the things that comes up in your story is there's references to different modes of transportation once in a while, like... Um, a cart, um, a yacht. <laughs> um, there's just different uh, references like that. What what were typical sorts of modes of transportation during this era? Well, of course, the main means of transportation was foot. Uh, people walked, which was slow, and and so life moved slowly. Uh, they used donkeys. Horses were used. They were very elite objects only used for pulling chariots and things like that. They were not something you'd have pulling your plow. So they were rather rare. But, um, of course, Egypt being centered in the Nile Valley, the boat was the main means of transportation. It was much quicker and more pleasant, less dangerous than any kind of land transport. So they had all... 
all kinds of boats and went up and down that river constantly. That's that's neat to know that because it's it just kind of came as I was reading. I was like, this is cool. I've seen multiple references to different types of uh, uh, transportation. In some parts they they play a pretty big role, and it and it just kind of went went back. And I said, I got to ask her about that before we get too far because it's a kind of an interesting aspect of it. So you know, uh, bef- before I ask you to share a little bit about your newest story, I mean, could you talk a little bit about who Lord Honey is or was and what role he he played in his world? Well, he's a real person. Uh, he was a diplomat over a long period of time from the reign of Amenhotep III on probably into Tutankhamun. We only know about him what we read in the Amarna letters, which is to say his name <laughs> and and the name of his father. But we do see some of the missions on which he was sent, and they were extremely important. And so, you know, presumably he was a, a trusted um an experienced man and that's all i had to go on uh, some books that i've written my series depend more than others on his historical adventures but i've i've tried to reconstruct the kind of person who would have been a trusted and experienced diplomat somebody who uh, for 20 years or more was sent on these very sensitive missions so he was sort of the insp- the real one was sort of the inspiration for the fictitious one. Gotcha. Very cool. Because that's uh, you, know, you have these uh, different people that he's interacting with it and such. And in, in reality, that's so you think he, he the real one existed for about in his position for about 20 or more years. It's hard to know, but it, there's the events that he's associated with seem to be spaced out a bit. So that probably is a fair estimate. Gotcha. Would someone like this in those times, uh, I mean, would they be, what kind of stratus of the culture, of the society would they be in? You know, They would have been upper upper level, maybe not the very top echelon of, of uh, grandees, but certainly they would have been a part of the scribal class. And in Egypt, literacy was what determined your, your role in the pecking order of the state. So... Uh, as a, as a scribe, a literate person, probably multilingual, he would have been um, mid to upper level. Uh, in the books, he progresses from mid to upper level. In fact, that's a, I kind of fig- I kind of caught on to that. And that's why it's and and the, but it made me think about. I wonder what the real you know in this position, what it, would it, where would it be? Because they they definitely, I mean, am I right that they definitely had uh, stratified uh, society? Oh, yes, it, it was highly stratified, um, more than anything we've ever experienced. The king was literally another creature altogether than the human race. He was divine. And then there were uh, the aristocrats who took their value from their literacy and from there, the fact that they were serving the king. So all uh, his recognition of them is what gave them power and prestige. They were uh, in the books were exposed to this idea of the gold of honor, where they were publicly recognized and given all sorts of uh, gold jewelry and grain and probably cattle and other things, which served to up their status, um, both in the eyes of people and also in reality, it made them richer. So that gave them more status. Gotcha. Yes. And, that's, and definitely you see, you see that in, in the stories. So I think it's, thank you for talking about that. I, you know, uh, 
So let's uh, let's shift to your newest story, Lake of Flowers. Can you give us an overview of what's happening as we join the main characters? Well, the name, let me just say, comes from the geography of the underworld. It's um, after the soul has been weighed and has passed its tests. It crosses the Lake of Flowers to the promised land, so to speak, the field of reeds. So that's sort of the last tribulation before you get to your happy rewards. Uh, and this is the second to final book in the series. So they're closing in on, on the happy hunting ground here. Uh, it begins with the, the queen, uh, who is the daughter of Akhenaten, has had a, a number of um, thefts. Of, oh, actually, it's the king, the, uh, Nefertiti, who's a king after her husband dies. She's had there have been a number of thefts from her her uh, apartments and small toilet objects, which are then returned. And um, it seems rather strange. And she sets Honey to investigate this and. As time goes on, he begins to realize there is something more sinister afoot, that this is all part of a, a deeper plot of some sort. And then there are the usual familial arcs, uh, where we learn a little of the backstory of um, his his daughter Neferet's friend, Benner Ibb, a fellow physician there at court. I'm going to say the usual mix of, of murder mystery, a political thriller, and personal family drama. Yeah, because there's a lot of it right there. I mean, it's because you have... Uh interacting with who's someone's plotting something and come into the middle of it and uh, talking about the death and actually, you know, someone plotting the death of her own uh, father <laughs> type thing. Um, what yeah. can you talk about uh, a little bit? Because what's interesting here is like you have the, um, the daughter's a doctor and there's other, other doctors that were introduced to and such um, in, in the, in the real world. What, I mean, would you find women in all these roles? Well, yes, uh, and particularly in the Old Kingdom, women filled a variety of very high positions. Uh, there even seems to have been a woman vizier or prime minister. There were fewer roles open to women in the New Kingdom, or at least aristocratic women. Of course, they ran businesses and uh, could witness transactions and own property and everything, and, and divorce. So they had a lot of rights generally, but uh, it's... It's rare to find women who were illiterate, and yet it must have happened. So we we can speculate. We know that there were women doctors. Uh, we can speculate that that Hani's daughter <laughs> might have been one of them. Gotcha. The uh, and and especially with the the level in the the class structure, I guess that uh, yeah. it would have been that had a um, literate children and such would be a, a, I guess a big part of that. So you know, one of the things that uh, um, happens in here is that, you know, it makes me start thinking about this, which is, uh, especially as I'm delving into the story and you, 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 as he's uncovering these, this plot and so forth. Um, can you talk about a little bit about who, who rulers were and how succession took place? I mean, you know, was war, war always a possibility if there was a problem in the process? Or, I mean, it seems like, <laughs> it seems like there are uh, yeah. people making it a problem. <laughs> yes, it is. It was a problem frequently. Um, typically, it was succession from father to son. But there are also women kings where there was no son or she might have served as a regent for a while and then, you know, proclaimed herself king. Uh, often other family members would take the, the throne either uh, by violence or not. And sometimes 
someone from the government like a vizier might take over uh, pushing the real heir out so we know we know there were violent transitions of power and actually quite a few of them over <laughs> 3000 years uh, in one case under Ramses III there was a, a violent uh, palace coup in which one of his sons uh, the son's mother and some uh, public officials got together and, and assassinated the king and tried to take over the, the throne uh, unsuccessfully I might add well they killed him successfully but he didn't get the throne Gotcha. And it, uh, you, know, you start wondering, do I need to have a talk with my sons? <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, keep them in your camp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, okay, well, you guys are talking a little bit too much by yourselves. I think we're going to, what do I need to buy you? <laughs> were there, I mean, and so it also, as you know, as Hani's getting mixed up in, in all this and trying to figure out what's going on, um, by, uh, you know, there's different announcements of things that have happened and such. The, uh, it, it also makes me want to talk about the laws that they had during this period. I mean, because as they're conspiring or they're thinking about, uh, you know, <laughs> choosing their own king or queen, <laughs> whether it's themselves, um, you know, it's what types of things are they uh, um, running the risk of being, you know, how, how they're running the risk of being dealt with? I mean, what, what, what types of punishments existed that uh, uh, might have happened to them? Well, first of all, it was um, they had a highly developed sense of moral right and wrong. It was based on their religious system, although they don't have anything like a constitution or a, a code of law, so to speak. Uh, the principle of ma'at, which was a concept that embraces truth and justice and cosmic order and balance and everything, was very, very strong, and it was something the gods themselves enforced. Um, obviously, people violated that and committed crimes, and uh, since the punishment in the afterworld would have been very ferocious, punishments on earth were pretty harsh, too. There were a lot of capital crimes. Any, any crime against the king or the government would have been um, punishable by death, but also things like tomb robbing or um, graft against a temple or something like that, uh, cheating the gods in some way. And there were various forms of, of capital punishment that included burning. That was typical. Uh, could decapitation. You could be drowned. You could be impaled. <laughs> so they were pretty harsh. Yeah, uh, in addition to punishment that involved death, it's about as harsh as it gets. There were beatings very frequently uh, and also uh, caning people's feet. That was a, a popular one. They might cut off your nose and ears, which marked you forever as a criminal. Or you could be sent off to penal servitude someplace, in particular, uh, something like the gold mines in the desert, which was a pretty harsh way of life. And you might or might not survive that. Wow. I, I, and, it, and it just, you know, as I was reading, I just wanted to ask these questions because it's interesting because, you know, and, and, you know, Lord Hani in the position that he's in, who's looking into this sort of stuff, would he make recommendations in 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 the real world, would someone in that position be making, I mean, ha, did they have someone who's was considered like a justice or did it go straight to like the, um, the local, uh, you know, whoever's in charge of that city or whatever, or town, or did it go straight to the King's people? Well, there, there were judges and every little village would have its magistrate of some kind. Sometimes that was just a village council, which could be presided over by women, incidentally. Uh, but, Whoever was the 
presiding magistrate for that area, whether it was a town or a province, depending on the crime, of course. Uh, graver crimes would have been um, reserved for higher uh, echelons. But there were, um, there were sort of national judges, uh, and of course, ultimately, the king was responsible for uh, justice in his country, so you could appeal to the king how frequently it actually got to him, I don't know. Uh, technically, the king was the judge in all of these cases, but obviously he had to delegate. Gotcha. The, uh, and one of the things that's interesting is that you, and you mentioned this earlier, you have a queen who becomes king, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, right. She, she uh, Nefertiti, the beautiful queen of Akhenaten. And now we're not 100% sure of this, but most scholars believe that she was at some point a king, either co-regent with her husband and or uh, independent after his death, which is, it's unusual, but there was nothing truly extraordinary or shocking about it. Uh, women had a right to be king as, as did men, but it less frequently happened. Gotcha, gotcha. The, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I think is neat about your books, uh, you know, is that uh, I don't think that you have to be a historian or archaeologist to enjoy your Lord Hani stories. What do you think speaks to your readers in your tales? Well, I think the fact that they're mysteries is one thing. Uh, you know, a mystery is all wrapped up at the end. Good triumphs over evil. Uh, you know where you stand in the world. And I think that's attractive, especially now perhaps, but always. Another thing is there are a lot of people who are really crazy about ancient Egypt, um, brought up on National Geographic and Discovery Channel or whatever. So I, I, my earlier series is about an empire no one's ever heard of, and so I decided to to move over to Egypt, where there was a built-in demographic. Uh, beyond that, I think Hani's character and that of his family, they're, they're uh, good people, very loving, they're humorous, they interact well and, and kind of undergo all the things that families undergo in any period and, and triumph. I think that's something people like to see occasionally after all the uh, police detective stories. That's awesome because it, it it does it feels good. I mean, there's Lord Hani is a is a family. I mean, he's family oriented, and you get a taste of that with the interaction with the daughter, and and you know, and uh, as well as some of his other interactions with others. And it's it's kind of cool because and you know, having a having a good person, you know, sort of syndrome is a nice thing, especially when you deal with the whatever the mystery is, which starts rather quickly. <laughs> Start finding out some things going on, and uh, which kind of sucks you into it too, which is awesome. And you know, just. Uh, I think that's cool what you're talking about. I have, uh, um, you know, it's, I think it's just a, a neat aspect of it is that people like, you like to have things kind of work out in the end, I think. At least I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know I agree completely. Yeah. I really, I, I don't like it when I get to the end of one and I go, you're kidding me, right? That, no, that's not who's supposed to die. You know, it's like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sometimes. <laughs> you either want that or you don't. <laughs> right, exactly. Good stuff. I, you know, one of the one of the things that uh, we're, we're doing is we're getting ready to close, and I got a couple of questions for you. But uh, you, you kind of alluded to this a little bit ago. Uh, oh, by the way, um, before I do that, I got to ask this because you, you mentioned something just a second ago. So this kind of stumble through this uh, here, but uh, that's cool what you talked about with the idea of why you moved over to Egypt. Okay. Cause I gotta, I gotta mention that just a minute because yeah, having been someone who, you know, I remember when uh, um, you had all the 
the, the stuff centered around King Tut and what was found in the tomb. And of course, uh, you know, I'm of the age that, uh, um, of course, um, Steve Martin, the comedian, turned it into um, a huge moneymaker for him as he did his famous song. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, which was kind of catchy and stuck with you. And then uh, as I got a little older, they toured in the country, the, the, the findings of Ramses II, I think. Um, oh, yeah. And that was pretty amazing. That was what they found and uh, so forth. And so, yeah, I, I can imagine you have kind of a built-in audience there for you say anything Egyptian, especially um, because of the, and then there's all kinds of other movies or books or whatever that everything has a curse on it. And there's going to eventually be a um, somebody coming to kill everybody. So, <laughs> but I thought th they were aliens. <laughs> yes. Or yes. Or actually we know that it was a Stargate that opened up and these aliens built all the primitive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's yeah. I almost forgot that one. That's that, uh, but that's cool. That uh, I think that's neat. What you're thinking about there, because that does kind of lend itself. Because you have that building audience thinking about. Well, it's it's already mysterious because you have things that they find in the ground that you know are buried underneath all of this, and uh, you know, and it's easy to ask questions like who built, who really built it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> plus it's such a congenial society. I mean, they're so. They're so clever and so accomplished in so many ways. It's fun just to bring in different aspects of their life to to see really what a what a great civilization it was. That's very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so like I got started to say before, as we're getting ready to close, um, do you have you have some new stories on the way, right? So you got it. Uh, I'm a little afraid of what where one of them's going, but we got. <laughs> um, sounds like some things may be coming to an end, but uh, what you got coming up? Well, I, I'm working on the, the sixth and final book in the Lord Hani Mysteries, and after that, I think I want to move into some prequels. Um, nobody, or at least I, don't want to say goodbye to him, but, but he is getting a little long in the tooth, <laughs> and I'll start having to kill people off if they get any older. <laughs> nice. Uh, in addition to that, I'm, I'm working on two uh, serial novels in this new Amazon Bella format. Uh, one is just out the first few episodes are out already uh, called the, uh, the moon that fell from heaven and it's back in the Hittite world um, but it, it's a very different process I, it, it's challenging to write in this format I you know I have a contract for two of these books I don't know how much further I'll take them it's maybe I'll learn as I go gotcha what can you explain a little bit about what the format is what I mean well it's uh, it's in serial form like Dickens and a lot of people wrote originally, you get tokens and then you plunk out as many tokens as you want episodes. And I don't know if they're going to be issued weekly or you know daily or how that's going to work. Uh, but they're little snippets of a book, not even a chapter, something like 500 to 2000 words each. Mine are about 15, 1600. And it just, they, you know, they have to have a hook on the end to keep you reading and there's something has to happen every 1500 words it's a very different style that i'm accustomed to oh that's but interesting it's fun you know it's it's a challenge yeah it's a challenge most definitely that's that's fascinating especially because that's like you know kind of like the you know uh those tv shows from uh from the past that uh were or actually they appeared in you know the beginning of movies where uh um i'm trying to think of one of them was called like captain Sky Rangers, I forget what they were called, but um, 
You only, oh, right, right. Yeah, I know what you mean. You only saw so much of it. I mean, I guess they did this with Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers and stuff like that. But, you know, just just a little bit. And then at the end, you know, you left the hero hanging from a cliff or something. And it's like, no. Wow. Right, literal cliffhanger. You know? <laughs> yes. Good, good stuff. Well, good luck with that. That's awesome. And looking forward Thank to you. the new stuff coming out. And, yeah. uh, and, and Elf, if someone wanted to connect further with you, where would you send them? Well, my uh, my website, www.nlholmes.com. That's H-O-L-M-E-S. And I also have uh, Facebook and Instagram and all of the usual suspects and social media. Awesome. I will have those in the show notes. And uh, and I got two last questions that have more to do with writing. They have all to do with writing. What am I saying? Um, do you have a way of keeping your characters organized so that you don't forget someone or that they don't change their role or function of story? I mean, how do you keep track of your characters? Well, uh, originally I started keeping a list and I would write, you know, honey, age such and such, uh, married to so-and-so, you know, just kind of basic information about them. But after five volumes about the same people, I kind of don't need to do that anymore. I, I want to be clear in my mind how old they all are at any given moment, but but I know their relationships quite well by now. Uh, they've become real to me, you might say. <laughs> and um, so if I, if I were to start a new series, I'd probably have to begin again by keeping physical notes of some sort. That's cool. I was it's, I'm always amazed by that, especially when a, there's a series of books and the and the author might introduce a couple, just a couple new ones that <laughs> float in and out. And I, I was curious how you might do that. Uh, the last one I want to ask you is this. If you were talking with an audience of writers at a conference and you were focused on giving them some advice on how to complete a story, how to finish their book, what is something you would tell them? Oh, man, this is a tough question. Uh, I, I myself don't know how a book's going to end until I get there. And that's true, even though they're mysteries and therefore seemingly tightly plotted. Um, I, I think you can sort of feel where it's taking you, and then you want not to go there. <laughs> you want to switch it around so the obvious person is not the guilty party. Um, but for any kind of book, you want an ending that is satisfying, uh, either heartrending or you know joyful or satisfying intellectually uh, you don't want to leave readers feeling like you said a minute ago oh really <laughs> you, know, you want them to to feel they, that they've had a meaty meal there uh, when they finished your book so i guess that would be my sort of vague and uh, and ambiguous <laughs> advice to fellow writers that's 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 good advice because that's a that's a cool thing and i love the thought about uh, you know if you th- feel like you know where it's going is change direction then <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> i love that because that's that's even that's the best right there because i love books when you read them and uh you get to that point in the story where you're like i got this all figured out this is it this this that and the other and then nope <laughs> nope because didn't see this thing coming yeah yeah that's that's what we always strive for but it, it doesn't always happen some some readers are so good at solving mysteries that you can't stay ahead of them that's, that's funny i think that's interesting i, I <laughs> you know, cause it's, yeah, I, I've known people like that, but it, I, I like being sucked in and just falling for it and, and then realizing that, yep, tricked me. <laughs> so, that's a good feeling. Um, and Elle, it was great to talk with you again. Love the intrigue that you create in your Lord Honey series, um, Lake of Flowers. Awesome book. Thanks so much for sharing and wishing the best in all you do. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, 
Your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.